Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We're delighted to be with you, and we're delighted to have Christopher Chung. And I asked Christopher before the program started, does he go by Chris or Christopher? And like me, he signs, I sign mine Donald Curtis, but I like to be called Don, and he likes to be called Chris. So, Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Don. Well, we're delighted to be uh, have you back with us and to talk about economic development. North Carolina, of course, is one of these states that uh, is growing like leaps and bounds, and we're even talking about in the next census maybe even adding a congressional district because we're growing faster than the rest of the country, maybe even two. That's right. And uh, But we also still have our problems because we have 20, 25 counties that are uh, sharing most of this growth, and uh, then we have 75 or so counties that are either bordering those and flat, or uh, unfortunately we have a number of counties that are actually losing ground. And so that's, uh, that's an interesting situation. It certainly is, yeah. So, uh, so let's talk a little bit about the Economic Development Partnership of North Carolina, of which you serve as CEO. Um, is this a part of state government, or is this privately funded? So we're uh, what's called a public-private uh, partnership. Uh, we're actually set up as a nonprofit organization, a 501c3 uh, to be specific. And what we do is we actually contract with uh, the North Carolina Department of Commerce, which is a state agency, but uh, they contract with us to perform a number of functions that used to be housed uh, within state government. So everything from a lot of what goes into recruiting companies here to marketing the state for tourism, uh, even things like helping companies to grow their exports and helping entrepreneurs understand the first few steps of setting up a business in North Carolina. All those things are now done uh, within the EDPNC, but certainly on behalf of state government through that contract relationship. Well, it's an interesting situation, as we said, where we have some uh, some high growth areas like the Triangle, the Triad, the uh, Charlotte area, uh, of course, the Greenville, North Carolina area, Wilmington, Asheville. Some of these areas are growing and others aren't. So let's let's focus a little bit about those counties that aren't growing and those counties that are uh, actually losing population. What can you do for them? What what is their hope? What where do they look for growth? Because uh, uh, you know part of the problem that they're facing is the fact that if their tax base goes down, the revenue goes down, then they have trouble paying for schools and paying for infrastructure. Sure, absolutely. So uh, it's, it's not a problem or a challenge unique to North Carolina. Uh, again, over about 22 years now in state-level economic development in my career, I've certainly seen this play out in other parts of the country. Um, one thing I would, we always urge uh, communities in rural areas to consider is that it's not all about necessarily recruiting a company in that uh, will somehow save the day, right? I think being in economic development for two decades plus now, business recruitment gets a lot of attention. Everyone loves to read the headlines about which companies moving to the state, moving to the area. Everybody loves a good groundbreaking, good ribbon cutting. That is just one form of economic development. And frankly, it's a very challenging one because there's only so many of those deals out there to be chased every year. And when you think about all the states, counties, and cities, going after that finite set of deals, the odds are, of course, quite uh, quite low uh, to win out in that competition. A lot of other ways that economic development can happen. Tourism is a big draw, for example, for some of our rural areas in North Carolina that have abundant, beautiful natural resources that draw tourists to come in, spend money on the local economy, which itself can create jobs and investment. Obviously, you want to help your existing companies. So if you've got a good base of industry, a lot of your job creation growth and investment 
ought to be coming from taking care of the growth needs of those companies. So I think from a, a strategy standpoint, uh, that's kind of the first point. Let's make sure we're not just focused on this this idea that we're going to somehow recruit a big factory in from the outside, because that may be challenging if your population is not growing or if you can't demonstrate your workforce is growing in that particular area. Things like broadband, uh, that's obviously huge. Uh, you mentioned infrastructure being key. Uh, broadband is a way to shorten that physical distance between some of these rural areas and the urban markets of the world uh, by allowing people to connect virtually to the workplace, uh, to access healthcare, to even access things like online education. Uh, while it doesn't solve everything, broadband connectivity is certainly going to be a big part of that solution for many rural areas, not just here in North Carolina, but certainly all over the United States. Well, uh, and I've been told several times in the past, and I, I'm going to ask you if, if this is still true, but uh, existing companies account for two to one over new industries in actual job creation. Is that correct? Uh, it's so? actually the, the number I typically hear is 75 to 80 percent of job growth actually comes from existing companies. So, so about, yes, even more so. Yeah, so uh, about just, four to one. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because if every company grows one person, that's a huge number of people. That's right, and, yeah. And, yeah. I always like to ask uh, communities, would you rather have 10 existing companies add 10 jobs each, or would you rather attract a new company to bring in 100 jobs at a time? Because really the math yeah. is the same. Yeah. And in fact, the, the former situation actually helps diversify your economic base by attracting jobs to different companies yeah. in the area. Well, it, it's certainly a challenging situation. And of course, North Carolina's uh, layout uh, begs for uh, some problems because we're a long and narrow state. <laughs> we and are. Uh, it's a long way from Mania to Murphy. It certainly <laughs> it is. is. And uh, so we have some of these counties that are really a long way away from any major city. Uh, you go back to, like you said, Murphy and Cherokee County, way back there. Of course, tourism in uh, that area is now growing because of the gambling casinos. It is, yes. They've seen a significant increase in visitor spending. And you know, think Cherokee, somewhere like that, it's only about 90 minutes or so from Atlanta. So again, some of these yeah. cities, uh, some of these communities may be tied actually closer to cities and urban markets, not in North Carolina, but certainly uh, within mm -hmm. orbit of some of those other states' large metros. Well, like Elizabeth City, and for example, That's it's right. closer to Norfolk. And, Absolutely. And, uh, and such. And so now, how do we work with other states in those regards where the circle, say, around Norfolk, uh, Norfolk includes a lot of North Carolina? Does Virginia actually work with us on those cases? Or in South Carolina, where, say, uh, Laurenburg and uh, Robinson County are very close to the South Carolina border? Sure. I mean, you'll see states collaborate, obviously, on things like uh, disaster recovery efforts whenever we've got a hurricane you know, spinning towards uh, this part of the country. On the economic development front, it can be a little bit more difficult because there is such intense competition for those companies that are looking to create jobs, make new investment. We've teamed up a little bit with South Carolina in the past on some joint marketing where we're promoting both Carolinas. Uh, but once there's an actual deal in play, as you can imagine, it gets a little bit more difficult to collaborate. Now, I think that would be the true test, right, is if two states ever were to team up on something like a joint incentive package because they know that it locates in a border area and the jobs created would benefit citizens of both states. But that's that's asking a lot of states to get into that kind of collaboration. But we do have like uh, the Charlotte Regional Business Alliance, uh, which is a joint bi-state economic development entity representing the metro Charlotte region, which spans that state line. So while it may not always be the state's uh, and the state government's teaming up, uh, it doesn't mean that you're not still seeing some collaboration across state borders here and there. 
Now, uh, there used to be a number that I was given that every time we create a new job, a truly new job, that it in effect creates two more jobs. Uh, is that number still accurate? It really depends on the sector. So uh, you're going to see sectors like manufacturing where you will see, a, they typically call it a multiplier, but the number of induced jobs or indirect jobs that result from one new job being created, typically very high in manufacturing, uh, especially high when you consider something like automotive manufacturing. That's why why states, including North Carolina, are so eager to land those automotive assembly plants. They know that when that auto assembly plant comes in, sure, that's going to be 2,000 direct new jobs, but all the different automotive suppliers and parts makers that have to come in and supply that factory, those are also going to create significant new employment, probably in total more than the actual assembly plant itself. Well, uh, that brings to mind uh, the fact that uh, we are in competition with other states, and I've often wondered why the federal government doesn't step in and say, wait a minute, let's level the playing field. No more incentives. Uh, that's been proposed uh, at different points, at least, like I said, I've been in this business for about 20 years now. And in the late 90s, there was a series that Time Magazine did examining corporate incentives by state and local governments. And that was one of their suggestions was the federal government ought to step in and impose an excise tax or just flat out ban these. I think at the end of the day, federal government really just defers to states to do what they, they want to do. But in the European Union, you have seen that similar move where the, the use of incentives is, is banned among member countries. I don't know that we'll ever get there. I think if we ever do, North Carolina will still compete extremely well on the basics of what we have to offer in terms of a business well, climate. that's the reason I th I'm in favor of it, because Absolutely. I think people like to live in North Carolina. <laughs> I would think so, too. As yeah. a transplant myself, I, yeah. I would agree. Well, you know, the other thing that, uh, you know, you hear the arguments about incentives is they're totally unfair to the existing business. If you're making gadgets and a new gadget company comes in and they get incentives and you've been in the state for 20 years and paid taxes and all the time, uh, there is something unfair about that. Yeah, it's certainly a, a concern. Again, I've spent most of my 20-some years uh, in the business recruitment side, so focusing on attracting companies. And yes, you will hear existing employers say, look, you're offering a lot of tax incentives and tax breaks to a new company coming in, and now I have to compete for my workers with that new company that you've helped to uh, assist and locate here. Uh, that's a fair uh, concern. I'd say the reality is that incentives are available to both existing and new companies. Uh, it's really just a function of how many jobs and how much investment and what kind of wages those companies are paying. Those are the basic criteria here in North Carolina, as well as in most other states. So if you're an existing employer, and you are interested in growing, uh, and you're planning to make investment, you're planning to create new jobs, there are incentives available in many instances to help facilitate that kind of expansion. So that's what I would you know, urge uh, your listeners who are running businesses to think about, is that they can also participate in this as long as, I said, they're, they're creating jobs and making investment in their communities. And so if they're interested in finding out about these, how do they get in touch with you? Because uh, I'm not sure that uh, a small business is totally aware of the opportunities like that. Oh, sure, absolutely. So our website is uh, www.edpnc. That's edpnc.com stands for Economic Development Partnership North Carolina.com uh, and incentives are just one way we can help those existing companies. A lot of what else we do on behalf of the state includes helping companies figure out if they're ready to export their products overseas. And why do we do that? We do that because if companies are successful 
finding new markets and finding new customers outside the U.S., hopefully that's going to lead to some organic growth right here in North Carolina. They'll create more jobs, make more investment. Again, we live in the biggest economy in the world, uh, but let's remember it's only 5% of the world's population, and it's about 20% of the world's purchasing power. So there's tremendous opportunities sitting outside the United States. Many companies, though, don't know what steps to take to tap into those lucrative markets overseas. That's one of the other services that we perform on the state's behalf uh, for existing companies. Our guest is Chris Chung, and we'll be back with more as we talk about economic development in the state of North Carolina, and we'll do that right after these messages here on Carolina Newsmakers. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team, but I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. We want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. You've got your shades on, do you? So cool, so hip, so sheltered by frames of UV protection to show the world you are a force. But did you also know by wearing sunglasses you're doing your eyes a favor? That's right, sunglasses help avoid overexposure to the sun, which can produce red eyes, a feeling of grittiness, even excessive tearing. But you, oh master of the incognito, are taking care of your eyes without even knowing it. For more easy ways to keep keeping your eyes healthy, see your optometrist or visit AOA.org. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Christopher Chung. He is the CEO of the Economic Development Partnership of North Carolina, a private-public partnership that is responsible for aiding and assisting economic growth in the state of North Carolina. I started to say economic job development, but that's just part of what you do. And North Carolina has a rather interesting track record of overcoming some real uh, obstacles that other states avoided. I mean, you know, if you go back uh, 15, 20 years ago, 30 years ago especially, we were very heavy in cigarette manufacturing. We were very heavy in textiles. We were very heavy in furniture. And most states that have faced the loss of those types of jobs are still trying to recover. Yet North Carolina um, has been able to not only recover, but in many cases replace most of those jobs with much better paying jobs. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you look at what uh, Raleigh and, and Charlotte looked like 40, 50 years ago, what the triad looked like 40, 50 years ago. And yes, it, look, the reality is every economy transforms, evolves, and adapts over time. The needs of companies in terms of the workforce and skills that they demand, that also changes over time. It, it just illustrates probably the biggest challenge in economic development, which is ensuring that there's an educated, skilled, trainable workforce that can adapt to whatever that economic change ends up looking like. Uh, in economic development today, I mean, our biggest challenges are what is automation going to do to the jobs that are here in the U.S. economy? There was a study released earlier this year that said 25% of all the jobs here in the United States are at high risk of automation, 
within the coming decade. So there are probably, what, 150 million jobs today in the U.S. economy. If you're talking 30-some, 40-some million jobs that are at risk of being automated away, what are those people going to do? What are the skills they'll need to adjust and adapt? Um, economies change, and like I said, uh, states, uh, local governments, the policymakers, uh, they have to be ready to make sure that they can adapt and respond quickly so that they are not left behind by those tremendous uh, changes to the economy. We hear a lot about self-driving cars, and uh, when you begin to think about what that might do if truly a car is able to program itself to the point where it is considerably safer than human beings and the impact that would have on the job market. For example, there would be far less wrecks and accidents. So the body shops would have less work. And then, of course, insurance rates should come down because if there's less. So all these, uh, the economy is sort of funny. When you push in here, you push out somewhere else. That's a great way to put it. Actually, your producer and I were just talking about self-driving cars. Yeah, you think about even on the manufacturing. Which scared the heck out of me, by the way. But uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready for it either. Although I will say I travel a lot around North Carolina driving myself. And so it wouldn't be bad to let someone else do the driving, even if that's the, the machine Well, we've itself. heard that about you. Right? <laughs> As a matter of fact, we've consider putting warnings on the air when you're on the road. Oh, very good. Actually, that's probably a good idea for the for the safety of the other drivers out there in North Carolina. Um, but no, I, you're absolutely right. In terms of changes to other industries, trucking, of course, if, if trucks uh, become self-driving, what's that going to do to all the truck drivers? And then we have drones. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Drones, the same thing on the airspace side. And then even on the manufacturing supply chain, if, if cars are self-driving, do you really need steering wheel manufacturers? Do you need brake manufacturers? Do you need some of these things that that you know, constitute the human interface with the vehicle, those things are no longer going to be really relevant to the design of a car. A car will essentially become a rolling office, a rolling dining room, a rolling bedroom, a rolling entertainment center. That's ultimately what true self-driving cars do. I, I think we'll all be much better rested. Um, we hopefully are all much more safe. Uh, but that's still probably years away, uh, on, even on the conservative side of things. Well, it, uh, but the economy, you know, I've often said that, uh, and I started this about 15 or 20 years ago, I said, you know, if I go back to college today, I would study economics because the truth of the matter is economics and economic theory never changes. The things that go into economic theory That's change, correct. the input, but uh, the the uh, supply and demand and all that sort of thing is true no matter where we go. Yes, that's right. And uh it's a, it's a major that I think uh, should start more in high school than does. Uh, yeah, I would as an economics major myself from college, I, I would agree that it's a helpful foundation uh, to teach you a lot of, of different things, right? Now, we have uh, some massive changes in retailing, and uh, the typical brick-and-mortar retailer seems to be on the decline right now. Now, whether that uh, is a temporary trend or not, I don't know. Uh, I've got some theories that uh, that may just be a fad. That's my personal belief. Uh, some of it, but we that is being replaced by home delivery and uh, uh, Amazon and, and things of this nature. Of course, one is creating jobs and the other is losing. Is there a net loss or gain there? That's a really good question. I, I will say, going back to that earlier uh, statistic I cited from the McKinsey uh, report on automation, I mean, you think about some of the jobs that are at highest risk of, of automation, and that does include some of these positions in the retail industry. Uh, no surprise, I mean, this has been going on for 25, 30 years, that it, people like the convenience of one-click shopping online, and, and everything shows up at their door, and these days you can get it delivered to your door within just a few hours of when you place that order. That's getting increasingly common in, in urban markets. Uh, 
yes, uh, that's certainly going to change uh, some of the employment in the economy, especially around the retail sector. Uh, one of the, the projected high growth jobs in the future is actually something uh, that's called like a virtual store manager. So someone who can walk you through your online experience with the same touch and care that you would expect from an in-person store manager, but doing it in a virtual environment as more and more of that purchasing behavior moves to an online environment. Well, that's, uh, you know. Brave new world. You know, brave new world. I'm going to change the subject a little bit and talk about the importance of the community college system. North Carolina sort of got into the community college system a little earlier than a lot of states. And we have uh, set up a system of uh, community colleges that provide great help to uh, the uh, business community. In most cases, a lot of job training, a lot of uh, uh, opportunities when a particular industry suffers and retraining and so forth. But uh, compared to other states, we're, we're ahead of the game there, aren't we? I would say so. We've got the third largest community college system in the country. I, I want to say it's Texas and California that have number one and number two. But we've got the third largest, as you pointed out. So 58 different community colleges. No North Carolinian is further than about 30 minutes drive from one of these different campuses. And they are pivotal. So uh, Dr. P, you know, Peter Hans is the president of the community college system now. They play a critical role in providing, of course, two-year education, many of whom go on to matriculate at four-year universities, but as you pointed out, extremely vital to industry in terms of developing that customized training that employers need for their workforce. We talk about workforce being that number one biggest challenge today for companies. Uh, Those community colleges are a huge part of the solution that we can offer here in North Carolina to ensure that companies have the skilled talent that they're needing to be successful in their industries. One other area that North Carolina, we, we mentioned earlier that North Carolina, uh, I, I guess 30 years ago, was heavy in textiles, furniture, uh, cigarette manufacturing, and uh, uh, some other th- things that have sort of disappeared. One part of our economy that has remained strong in t- total number of dollars is agriculture. But uh, automation and machinery um, is uh, aiding and assisting those farmers, but using less labor. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I was actually just telling someone the other day, I was at a, a trade show earlier this year, and John Deere was unveiling kind of its next generation of, of farm tractor. And this thing uh, relies on GPS technology. It can plant, till, do everything within a few centimeters of accuracy and all autonomously. So literally, you just need one operator to sit in the cab. Uh, he or she can be playing solitaire on their iPhone, and, and the machine does everything else. So when you think about that kind of transformation agriculture, yes, it's certainly going to have impact. Now, what we're trying to do here in North Carolina is we, we do a good job growing the crops, raising the livestock. How do we attract more of the value-added agribusiness, uh, food processing, food research and development? Uh, those types of functions are very, very important to, to aid in the growth of our job base. And so there's concerted efforts to do that. Uh, we work a lot with the Department of Agriculture on those kinds of efforts to attract value-added agribusiness. But you're right, farming has been changing for 100 years now at the least and will likely continue to change due to things like technology. So are we actually expanding any in acreage in farming? or is uh, This part is a question I'll ask uh, Agriculture Commissioner Trox. Yeah, Commissioner Trox would be better uh, served to address that. I, I don't know about the actual acreage, but certainly uh, I know a big part of what the Department of Agriculture does is helps farmers figure out if it makes sense to transition to different crops, uh, different livestock, uh, 
with things like industrial hemp uh, being able to be grown here in North Carolina, that could be an option for some of the, the folks who used to grow tobacco. Again, it just speaks to changes in the economy and how they drive things like our agriculture industry uh, here in North Carolina, which, as you pointed out, is still the largest industry, I think, clocking in at about 80 to $90 billion a year. How does the uh, uh, increase in longevity affect the economy overall as far as jobs and such, where uh, for years uh, the retirement age was sort of set at 65 because people, I guess the average uh, person was dying somewhere around 70. Now people are living much longer and many people are putting off retirement. How does that affect the overall job growth situation? Uh, well, I think it it could. Uh, well, there's a lot of this. That's a great question. I'm not sure I'm an expert in demography. Certainly that uh, there's a healthcare industry impact on that. Of course, as the as people live longer, they're likely to be consuming more of their healthcare in those later years of life. And so the capacity of the healthcare system to absorb all that, that's got to be one of those things to be considered. Uh, if people are staying in the workforce for a longer period of time because they expect to live longer, well, that could, uh, perhaps that could affect people who are hoping to move up into those positions. And so that could have impacts within an organization itself. Uh, retirement, uh, you can probably retire two, maybe three times in a particular lifetime now based on longevity. We, one of our functions within our tourism team is to attract retirees to North Carolina. But we don't want to stop just there, right? If we can get someone retiring here at the young age of 55, 60, 65, even 70 is pretty young these days. We also want to help them understand what I think it, a little older than 70 is still 75. young. 75, how's that? I, I'm how's just, that? That's just a personal <laughs> observation. I thought I'd throw that in. At the young age of, let's say, 80 and under, let's say any of these retirees moving to North Carolina from New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, we also, also want to help them understand uh, what it takes to start a business in North Carolina in case any of them want to have second or even third careers because that itself can also contribute to economic development in our state. Again, it's about all strategies for driving economic development in North Carolina, not just about recruiting companies here to the state. Christopher Chung is our guest. He's the CEO of the Economic Development Partnership of North Carolina. Again, I want to give their uh, web address is edpnc.com. edpnc.com. Uh, that's how you get in touch with them and find out more about what they're doing. We'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers and our guest, Chris Chung, right after this. Hey, Dr. Phil here. I help people solve difficult and trying personal problems every day on my TV show, but there's one problem that's just got me stumped, childhood hunger. Nearly 16 million children in America struggle with it. That's one in five kids who may not know where their next meal is coming from, despite the fact that there's more than enough healthy, nutritious food out there to feed them all. Now, I don't know about you, but that is unacceptable to me. Luckily, the Feeding America network of good people is out there collecting surplus food and giving hope to hungry children and their families at local food banks all across the country. But let's face it, they can't do it without your help. Join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Confessions of a Potentially Perfect Parent, brought to you by AdoptUsKids.org. I know more about cooking dinner for a party of 12 than about packing a lunch for a 12-year-old. I know kids like things like fish sticks. Fillets I get, but sticks? Maybe we can just compromise on mac and cheese. 
Can you make that with Bree? You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who would love to put up with you. Call 1-888-200-4005 or visit AdoptUsKids.org for more information. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids, and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with Christopher uh, Chung, who is the CEO of the Economic Development Partnership of North Carolina, a uh, public-private partnership um, that uh, is charged with helping economic development in North Carolina, which not only, as we've talked about, includes finding new industry and new jobs, but also working with those who um, uh, are already in the uh, uh, business community and improving their situations. Uh, and so we asked Christopher if there's anything he particularly wanted to talk about, and he's given me a list of four things. So we're going to just go right down oh, the I list. Oh, I have. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, somebody did. Um, so one of the things I see a note here is energizing rural North Carolina conferences, which were introduced last year. Tell me about that. Yeah, those. that's right. So that's an initiative from our board of directors uh, who really wanted to try to do something for our, from our organization's standpoint to move the needle on rural North Carolina. As we talked about earlier in the segment, a lot of rural North Carolina is certainly facing some challenges. Again, not all of them uh, are, are you know impossible to overcome, and we want to try to help arm communities with what we think are some good case studies and success examples around the state of how to address uh, some of these key building blocks. So again, going back to this idea that uh, if if you don't have some of these foundational pieces in place as a community, especially as a rural community, it's going to be really hard to expect you to be able to recruit a company or convince a company to come in from the outside. And those building blocks, from our perspective, are issues like education, workforce, uh, infrastructure like broadband, like we talked about, uh, health. Uh, again, people don't necessarily think of health and healthcare as an economic development issue, but it really is. If your workers are not healthy because they cannot access good healthcare resources, that's certainly going to affect your viability as an employer. Uh, and then, last of all, leadership. Uh, you and I were talking during the break that leadership. Uh, the, the bench in many communities is just not as deep, and it really does take good, strong local leadership to drive positive changes in these other building block areas like education, healthcare, infrastructure, and workforce. So we did this for the first time last year, talking about all five of these issues. Uh, we're getting ready to get together in two weeks to focus on one of those building blocks, uh, workforce, uh, talking about talent attraction talent retention and talent development in rural areas with a lot of great case studies, really great presenters, and we hope to address each of those other building blocks in subsequent years to come. So we're very excited about that. Uh, it's our way of, of helping aid that discussion around what can be done to assist rural North Carolina. I should have asked this question earlier, but I'm just going to sort of get away from the topics right now and ask you, Christopher, how did you end up in North Carolina? Because you attended the Ohio State University. By the way, the, the graduates up there call it the Ohio State University. <laughs> and they get quite angry when you don't call it the Ohio State it, University. It's the Ohio State when you write it. I'm, I'm quite fine if you say Ohio State in, the, in just you know normal conversation. So I, I'm a native of Ohio, born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. Spent my first 30 years there, including my first 10 years in state economic development uh, for what – uh, was then the state's Department of Commerce in Ohio. Then I spent seven years heading up Missouri's public-private uh, partnership focused on business recruitment and business attraction. When North Carolina was looking at uh, taking this same approach a few years ago, they benchmarked Missouri as one of the states they wanted to learn from. That's how I got in touch with the people here. 
one conversation led to another, and here I am five years uh, into the job here. In fact, our organization, the EDPNC, is getting ready to celebrate its fifth birthday coming up here in about two weeks. So uh, I've been really privileged to be part of the team uh, since day one. Now, there's a rumor that you came because uh, from uh, Missouri to North Carolina because our beaches were better. <laughs> There are not a lot of beaches in Missouri. There are a lot of great things, including some really good brisket barbecue, not pulled pork. They can't do pulled pork very well, but the brisket's fantastic. But yeah, the mountains, the beaches, I mean, North Carolina, for someone who grew up and lived most of his life in the Midwest, it's just, it's a, a lovely, lovely Well, you place know, that's, that's got to be a great aid in what you're doing, because this is a good, uh, diverse state, uh, and it's... Uh, uh, such a uh, politically uh, diverse, uh, you know, we're a purple state. I mean, we, we, we're sort of well-balanced, I think, in our thought. Sometimes that leads to some political problems. But it certainly does, and we stay out of that. But you're right, the natural scenery, the the temperate weather, um, you know, days like today where it's gorgeous, beautiful outside. I mean, those things are all part of that sales yeah. pitch, depending on who you're talking to. But, yes, as someone who's lived other places and moved here only recently, hopefully that makes me in a pretty good position to tell others who may be thinking about making the move here to North Carolina. We hear a lot about our interest in China because China has such a huge population. But uh, India also is a uh, uh, a country that has huge numbers of people, and I understand that you're locating an office there and are looking at India as well as China. Yeah, that's right. So we've had an office in China. North Carolina has for probably 20 years now. But uh, just last year, so I think November of 2018, the first time ever in North Carolina, uh, an office was set up in India specifically with the focus of identifying Indian companies that might be looking to move to the United States, expand operations, and of course we want to attract them here to North Carolina. So this this office does what we call foreign direct investment. But again, identifying Indian companies in pharma, in automotive-related manufacturing, in IT uh, that are thinking they need to be in the United States with a presence. And what we want to do is put North Carolina in front of them as the best option here in the U.S. In fact, uh, you may have seen it, but uh, just the other day, the governor and secretary of commerce announced Kaliani Group, uh, Bharat Forge, uh, it's a $3 billion a year industrial conglomerate based in India that will be opening up a new manufacturing facility in Sanford uh, in Lee County. Uh, that project was a result of a team effort, including our India office, which helped to develop that initial relationship with Kaliani Group. And so that's exactly the kind of outcome that we want to see as a result of these overseas offices that we have. Well, foreign trade is so interesting because each area is so different. I know you also have a trade office in the Middle East, and that's yet quite different from India and China. That's right. Yeah, yeah. This, this office is focused on helping North Carolina companies export uh, yeah. into the Middle East market, which you can imagine there's a lot of wealth, a lot of consumer purchasing power over there, a lot of hotels being built, stadiums being built, a lot of real estate getting developed. So the furniture industry here in North Carolina, for example, has had a lot of success selling products into the Middle East as their economy expands over there. We've helped a lot of healthcare and medical-related companies also expand because, again, as the wealth grows in the Middle East, so too does the demand for high-quality medical care and healthcare products. So, again, just a way, another way that we can help existing North Carolina companies to tap into new markets overseas because if they're successful, that's going to lead to more growth by those North Carolina companies right here at home. Now we've got two ports. We've got. I'm changing the subject on you again. Sure, we've got yeah. two ports: uh, Morehead City, and Wilmington. And yet, uh, the amount of commerce that they uh, transact, or the number of landings, or whatever you might call it, 
uh, is uh, pales in comparison to Norfolk and, and the South Carolina ports. Uh, what are we doing there to increase that and make it more attractive for North Carolina? Sure. So a lot of that has to do with infrastructure improvements, especially around the Port of Wilmington, uh, making sure the Port of Wilmington is able to accommodate uh, what they call post-Panamax vessels. So these much, much larger shipping uh, sh- uh, ships that can carry even more cargo, basically deepening the basin at the port, allowing these ships to come in, um, installing more crane capacity, uh, refrigerated frozen warehouse capacity for food products. Uh, those are all infrastructure investments that you've seen the state make in our ports, especially, like I said, the Port of Wilmington. Yes, our numbers are not what uh, you would see in Port of Savannah, Port of Charleston, Port of Norfolk, uh, but they are growing. And the nice thing about being smaller than those other large ports is the turn times are a lot faster for trucks coming in and coming out of the Port of Wilmington or the Port of Moorhead City. And that time savings is a huge advantage as the ports try to get more traffic coming through their areas. So are we investing enough there, or are we too slow? Uh, Well, you know, that's probably a great question for uh, Paul Koza. He's the CEO of the North Carolina Ports Authority. I'm sure more investment always helps because there's always things to do to step up our competitiveness. Uh, They've done a great job attracting additional shippers and carriers to run through their ports. Uh, We certainly deal with companies that are interested in locating nearby or adjacent to those ports because it provides them logistical advantages. Now, will we ever catch Charleston, Norfolk, Virginia? There's quite a bit of a distance between our ports and theirs, but it doesn't mean that our ports aren't growing rather healthily, which is which is what they're doing right now. now. I know you also have started a new initiative this year to help North Carolina small businesses, and that uh, a business, a small business by this definition is 500 or fewer employees, increase their international sales in Southeast Asia, which uh, you've identified as a hot market. That's like Singapore and Thailand and Vietnam and such. That's right. Yeah. Again, going back to similar to why we have that office in the Middle East, uh, this this these offices have to do to support our export assistance function. And then, like I said, that's about helping our North Carolina manufacturers find new customers and markets overseas. So I think we're always trying to think where are the other parts of the world where our manufacturers can have success selling into uh, customers in those parts of the world. Uh, so that's that's just another of those recent initiatives that we're taking a look at. How do we step up our game in Southeast Asia? Because that's also somewhere where we see has tremendous consumer purchasing power that will benefit and buy products from our North Carolina companies. And of course, our relationship with China is very important. And, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's good news and bad news there. I always uh, tell people when they worry a little bit about China, I say their investment is such in uh, our economy that they can't afford to bomb us. So... <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, we, we, we at least don't have a military enemy there. <laughs> no, no. But uh, though there is a lot of influence uh, of Chinese investments in the United States. Are we, uh, uh, in, by like sign, also investing greatly in China? Or? Uh, so I'm sure there are a lot of North Carolina-based companies that have operations in the China market. Uh, we don't really get involved in that sort of thing, where if a, a North Carolina headquartered company wants to open a new factory in China, of course, we're not really – there's there's folks in China that are trying to make that happen. That's not really part of what we do. Uh, as I said, we help North Carolina companies sell into markets overseas, and we try to attract companies that are based overseas to expand here into North Carolina. And we have seen a steady flow – of deal activity from the China market. Again, Chinese companies in everything from automotive to IT to life sciences 
who are interested in setting up operations somewhere in the United States, and we want that somewhere in the U.S. to be right here in North Carolina. Now, how will these trade tensions affect that deal flow long term? Really hard to say. We're, we're working with probably seven or eight Chinese companies right now that are seriously considering opening up something in the United States, uh, but have some of them slowed down their plans because of trade tensions? Uh, yes, uh, there's, you're seeing a little bit of that right now, at least in our world. Well, trade tensions uh, always are very contentious until they settle, and then everybody, for some reason or other, becomes great friends and starts smiling again. So maybe that'll happen. <laughs> Let uh, us all hope. Uh, well, it is, uh, of course, in the news all the time these days, and it is of great concern. But usually when they're settled, they're settled, and everybody's happy, and it settles down again. Our guest is uh, Christopher Chung. He's the CEO of the Economic Development Partnership of North Carolina. And we'll be back with one final segment of Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. When we get old, will you take care of me if I can't get around anymore? Of course. We'll find a way. Are you going to take care of me if I can't see anymore? I'll read to you every day. And if one of us gets Alzheimer's disease, what then? Call 1-800-437-2423 for a free booklet on caring for your loved ones from Alzheimer's Disease Research. 1-800-437-2423. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on uh, Carolina Newsmakers uh, with Christopher Chung, the CEO of the Economic Development Partnership of North Carolina. We've talked about all the things that they're doing to affect commerce in North Carolina, not only increasing our awareness to people who are opening new jobs, but also helping the existing companies in North Carolina with their growth. Um, you know, we, we, we've talked about uh, a number of things. Which state or regions are our biggest competitors? We yeah, can... great, great question, Don. I mean, it really depends on the kind of company we're dealing with. If it's a manufacturer, uh, whether that's automotive or aerospace, we're typically competing often with South Carolina. Uh, Tennessee uh, is usually in that mix, as is Georgia. Uh, if we're talking more of an office or headquarters type project, that's when you're going to see places like Texas often be in the mix, uh, perhaps Northern Virginia, uh, sometimes even markets up in the Northeast, you know, the New York cities, the Bostons. But I'd say most of the competition we face on most projects tends to be regional here in the Southeast and, and the greater South, you know, Southern part of the country. Now, uh, the legislature is in session now and passing new laws, and we've always considered that sort of a danger when they're in session. It, we always feel a lot safer when any legislative body, whether it's state or local, goes home. We, we just feel like, you know, we're, we're safer because change always bothers people. But uh, so having said that, 
what are the uh, legis- what is the legislation that has been passed or is being considered by the North Carolina General Assembly that might give North Carolina a better advantage as we grow our economy, not only new companies, but also existing businesses? Well, I, I think uh, in the five years that I've been here, uh, especially just here in the past couple of years, you've seen a lot of great bipartisan collaboration between the governor and the legislature on economic development uh, legislation, which is always encouraging to see because economic development, by and large, is a nonpartisan issue. Recruiting companies, helping existing businesses grow, promoting the state for tourism, none of these things carries a party label, nor should they. So that's why I think you've seen a lot of great cooperation operation to improve our incentives toolbox, uh, to make it more business friendly. I think going forward, of course, investments in things like infrastructure, education, healthcare, those things all improve the quality of life. They improve the quality of place. Uh, they improve that overall product that we're out there trying to promote to companies uh, that are looking to come here. Uh, education and, and infrastructure, of course, are considered two of the biggest building blocks of any economy, uh, especially when you consider the, the needs for a skilled, talented workforce uh, and the ability uh, to keep our infrastructure ahead of the growth that we've seen in North Carolina. Uh, our population growth has been tremendous in the state because people are moving here from elsewhere, uh, especially in markets like the Triangle and Charlotte. Well, if the infrastructure can't keep up with that population growth, that's going to lead to congestion. That's going to lead to folks who think of us as an Atlanta or an Austin where you can never you know, drive anywhere in less than an hour. That's not necessarily good for the image of a location. Uh, and so I think those kinds of investments in transportation infrastructure are also going to be pretty key. So uh, as you talk to, uh, let's talk about out-of-state uh, businesses that are lo- looking to locate in North Carolina. What, what are probably the top two or three things that they look for? We always think it's incentives, but uh, sure. I'm sure that's maybe there. But Yeah, I mean, incentives certainly play a role, but they typically play a role once you get down to those two or three finalist locations. I'd say at the outset, as they're narrowing down the funnel of locations, be it states or cities, uh, workforce and talent availability is certainly right now, given very low unemployment rates, giving a strong economy, given these changing skill needs because of technological changes. Uh, I can't imagine there's a single conversation we've had in the past few years where workforce was not the number one issue that companies were thinking about. Uh, Of course, they're looking at total cost of operations. That could be energy costs. That could be tax rates. That could be construction and real estate costs. Uh, Certainly, talent dominates. And then depending on whether you're talking manufacturing or or office or biotechnology, you're going to have things like airport accessibility. You're going to have things like proximity to highway. You're going to have things like proximity to research universities. Again, really depends on the sector after that. But number one on everybody's list, obviously, is, is talent, no matter the sector. Now, the uh, out-of-state out investment in research is particularly large at uh, uh, UNC Chapel Hill is always in the top uh, five or six Absolutely. in the country. Duke, of course, is up there. NC State is always uh, there, probably not quite to the extent of Duke and, and UNC Chapel Hill, but very important. Those dollars are very important. Uh, that they create uh, jobs for very talented people. But also, uh, I would think it would begin to create a tie between North Carolina and the companies that are funding them and the federal government. That's right, yeah. Our our universities are tremendously adept at drawing down that federal research support funding because they're doing fantastic research. Again, whether it's those universities right here in the Research Triangle, whether it's institutions like Wake Forest, UNC Charlotte, uh, wherever you go in the state, we've got universities that are able to leverage funding from the NIH, the NST, and some of these other groups. 
the key here is what are we doing with those early stage technologies that are being developed out of the research from our universities? What are, what's the ecosystem? What's the funding and capital situation like to support the commercialization of these technologies? Those technologies don't do us any good if they're sitting in a research lab somewhere. They need to get out and form private companies that will then become big job creators in and of themselves. That continues to be something that I think North Carolina, a lot of folks are looking how better to do that in the future. I'm going to ask you one more question. It's, it may you, you may have already answered it in some, to some degree, but what changes could help North Carolina have a little bit more of a competitive edge? What, what, what would you like to see? Well, I, I would say that we do very well right now. Again, you look at the business rankings, be it Forbes, Chief Executive Magazine. Um, we consistently are in the top 10, if not the top five. So we're very well regarded as a business climate by most of the people who are making these decisions. I would say continuing to invest in a business climate that uh, is, is a competitively priced one, a, a great value, a workforce and talent pool that's growing uh, and continues to grow, an infrastructure that supports our, our, our great location, uh, broadband connectivity, because that's the kind of the new infrastructure component, uh, quality of life issues, whether that's assuring we don't have traffic congestion, whether it's assuring we've got great health care access uh, for our citizens. I mean, all of this, as you can imagine, right, it's a, it's a lot of different pieces that go into how companies decide where to go. And I think no state should ever rest on its laurels. You've got to keep attacking each of those things to keep making your state a better place. Uh, and so that's what I would say, uh, as someone who's kind of greedy, I'd say let's work on all of that because that's just going to give us a, an even better product to go out around the world and promote. Well, uh, so the next question is uh, how can existing businesses uh, uh, not only work with you but take advantage of the programs that, that you have? What, what, can, what can business do to help you, existing business? Well, existing companies here in North Carolina are probably the best spokespeople for why North Carolina is a great place to do business. Look, our job on behalf of the state is to say great things about North Carolina, and we're always going to do that. But we're, in some ways, paid spokespeople for North Carolina's business climate. That's why we often try to leverage existing businesses and their leadership to tell that story of why they've been successful in North Carolina with our talent pool, with our education system, with our access to markets. Uh, we've got a great new series of, of, of videos that we produced recently featuring about a half dozen business leaders from all over North Carolina in all kinds of different sectors talking about the success they've enjoyed as an executive and as a company in North Carolina. And I tell you, that peer-to-peer -peer testimony, nothing can substitute for that when it's one business leader talking to another about why North Carolina is such a great place to do business. That's uh, no doubt true. I, I think uh, people would uh, find that e very easy to believe. Well, uh, Christopher, thank you so much for being with us and sharing the thoughts of what the Economic Development Partnership of North Carolina is doing. Again, if you'd like more information, you can go online to edpnc.com, edpnc.com, and get that information. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can do so by going online to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com. program has been produced by Jason Cog, and he'll have another interesting guest for us again next week on the same group of stations. Till next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.